Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love your podcast. What is up? It's a gold fam. Happy Monday. Super excited for this episode today. Today, my guest is Dave Sketchard. Dave's story is fascinating. Ever since Dave was a little kid, he dreamed of playing in the NHL as a professional hockey player. After years of discipline, hard work, sacrifice, blood, sweat, tears, his dreams came true at the young age of 21 when he was drafted into the NHL. Years later, his life would turn rock bottom after being hit in a game and being carried off the ice in a stretcher after getting a fifth concussion. When he was down on the ice, he had an out-of-body experience, a spiritual encounter, which ultimately led him off the ice to pursue his real dreams and passions in his pursuit to help others live a life of purpose. The years following that fifth concussion were extremely difficult. He was confronted with emotional, mental, and physical trauma post his NHL career. He suffered from debilitating migraines, destructive behavior, and more. I am so excited, so honored to share his inspiring journey with you today of healing, finding purpose, and details around his new book, The Comeback, which just launched. Okay, awesome. Dave Scatcher, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited, man. Let's rock this thing. I'm excited as well. Are you in a home office? Is that, is, is that a home office I see there? This is a home office. Uh, we work with our clients through here and through Zoom mostly. I had my orange glasses on earlier because I've been uh, working like 18 hours a day on my on my laptop, which is something I do not teach or recommend to do. It's just we've been <laughs> crazy busy. We've got a book out. We've got a challenge coming up. We've got a webinar out. And we got a our live event coming in December. So you can imagine I got a lot of irons in the fire and now we're just hustling and executing. You're a busy man. I have the blue light glasses as well, but mine aren't, they're not the orange one. I don't think they're as effective to be honest. I think the orange ones really work. I mean, I laughed at my buddy network marketer friends and uh, I used to laugh at their glasses every day. And then they're like, you just wait, you just wait till you're in front of your laptop all day, every day. Cause that <laughs> stuff affects your eyes. So I started to work longer hours like that. And they sent me a pair and said, told you. So, so I do wear them now and uh, <laughs> it, it does help for sure. Yeah. And total, the blue light totally messes with your sleep. And uh, for those of you that are tuning in on your wall, you have all your jerseys on the back. So it's pretty inspiring to look at. Uh, the whole, I don't know if the listeners can see, but I'm going to try to do this where my camera doesn't come unplugged but we got like all the teams i played for the whole way and then there's a couple more over this way yeah it's been a wild ride my friend i've been i've been at the highest highs and the lowest lows and everything in between let's jump into it let's take it back to your childhood when did you first decide that hockey was the thing you wanted to pursue i was probably and I only know this because of uh, my mom's scrapbook, but I think three or four years old, I was in preschool 
And when they asked the kids what everybody wanted to be, there was like the fireman and the policeman and the zookeeper or whatever. <laughs> like I was like the hockey little, I drew little hockey guys. So I wanted to be a hockey player since I was born. My dad never really played at a high level. He was my coach my whole life. Awesome mentor. Nobody we really knew. Just there wasn't a lot to do in the small town in Canada I grew up in. And, you know, everything froze. So it just was kind of natural to throw some skates on your kid and throw them on the ponds and let them uh, start to go skate. So that's what we did. So it sounds like your childhood dream. A lot of people do have childhood dreams, whether it be businessman, athlete. I know so many kids who said like, oh, I want to be a professional baseball player. I want to be a professional this, that. I think life rarely takes you that, that direction. I know so many people who said they want to be like a professional athlete, but they ended up maybe doing something in sports, but definitely not the sport itself. Well, that may be the case. It's just, I never thought that I wasn't going to be. People would tell me like the odds. They're like, okay, 700. This back when I played, it was like 700 players in the league per year out of 7 billion or 8 billion people. Not everybody's a hockey player, but still like those are pretty crazy odds to think that you could make that happen. It's probably like 0.001% or something. It's not even a percent. So I never thought I wasn't going to. And then, I mean, I just kept seeing myself doing it every day. And I was like looking at different ways that I could get stronger and faster and I was the skinniest kid in the world, so I had trouble gaining weight, but I was pretty fast. And in the book, I talk about my dad challenging me to figure out what I would have to become in order to play in the best league in the world. So I said things like stronger, better shot, better stick handler, better mindset. So I would start doing things. And like I asked for ankle weights at like eight years old so that I could wear them everywhere that I go to make my ankles, like my legs stronger. <laughs> I got one of the first set of rollerblades. I used to race the school bus to school and people would like be waving out the window. And it was like this race every day. It's like out of a movie. I, I used to shoot a hundred pucks in my backyard in the snow and the rain. Like it was my like mantra that I had to do that every single day. So when I look back on it, it was never really like, I wasn't like, Oh man, I got to go shoot pucks or like, Oh, I have to rollerblade to school. I was like excited to do it and it wasn't even like practice. So, you know, people say there's that 10,000 hour rule. Like I think I probably had 40 or 50,000 hours before I made it. And it's like not a big deal. It's like, all right, now we're just doing what we're supposed to do. So like it was an honor and I was really pretty young when I made it, but it didn't feel like I had any other mission other than to do that, which is weird. So you started playing in the NHL at 21? Yeah. What was it like when you got the contract and finally made it? Uh, it's crazy because I only really had played like 20 games in the minors or something. And then I had to get these heel surgeries and they did these crazy heel surgeries on me because my heels were hollow. They found in these x-rays that I had like these egg shaped holes on my heels. So if I fell into the boards or crashed on the ice, there's a chance my ankles could shatter. So they ended up grabbing bone out of my hip and putting it in my foot the first time. That wasn't enough. So they ground up donor bone and packed it into my heels, the second and third surgeries. And then training camp was like a month away. And I'd been like on the operating table the whole winter with these different surgeries. And then somehow I just figured out a way to make it. And I asked one of the scouts at the beginning of training camp, I said, listen, like, what do I got to do to make this team right now? Because well, we got Mark Messier, we got Pavel Bure, we got Trevor Linden, we have like all these superstars, but we need somebody to like protect these guys and to like play really physical and bring energy and hit and bang and crash. 
can you do that? And I said, yeah, just point them out and I'll knock them down. So I just started like doing fighting. I had four fights in training camp. I think my first couple of games and I want to do something to get noticed. That's for sure. Got it. When you first played in the NHL, what did it feel like, I guess, because you have this childhood dream. It sounds like you always thought that you were destined or you were going to play just based on how you grew up, like how you believed in yourself. But when you actually made it, how did that feel? Yeah, man, it was the the most incredible thing. And I'd always told my parents when I make the NHL, I'm going to fly you guys to wherever I'm playing. And then the NHL that year, they sent the Vancouver Canucks and, and Anaheim Mighty Ducks to Japan. And our first game was in Japan. So there's no way I could fly my parents there. So <laughs> we were playing in this arena that they made into a hockey arena. So there's a swimming pool underneath the ice and then high diving boards behind one of the nets. And we were in this place called the Yoyogi Memorial Arena or something. That's where we had the game. The Japanese fans cheered for both teams. And I just remember like being on the bench, national anthem, and then like the game starting. I'm like, holy smokes, like I'm in the NHL now. Like nobody can ever take this away from me. And I jumped on the ice for my first shift and I skated a thousand miles an hour, smiling the whole time. And I'm like, okay, I got a game. I got a game in the NHL. This is real. And I just smoked this guy. Crowd went crazy. They really, they didn't know hockey in Japan, but they just liked physical violence. So everybody I smoked, they'd cheer. They were cheering for both sides. And yeah, it was one of my most proud moments of my life because I had thousands of people tell me I would never make it and that it was a crazy dream. And who's going to find me in my small town? And I was too skinny and all these things people told me and it just like didn't matter i was like too focused it it didn't really affect me you had a lot of naysayers along the way yeah man tons like everybody <laughs> like a few of my closest friends they just saw how hard i work they kind of started to see my dream too but most people that don't get it like for all the listeners out there like if somebody doesn't see your vision like don't get upset because it's your vision it's not their vision they don't even know what it, that is. They don't know what you're made of or what you're built of, but it's your vision. So like own it and like believe in it and don't stop. Once you stop, you're definitely not going to make it. So like, just don't ever stop. Yeah. One of the things before the draft in 94, the Vancouver Connects brought me in to talk to me and they said, you know, Dave, we look at you as a project because you might be in the minors for a long time. We think you have raw talent, but it's not really developed yet. How long are you gonna willing to stay in the minors to get better before like you go to Europe and or another pro league or something like what? And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. Like I'd stay till I die. Like I literally said it like that. And he goes, you, you just stay in the minors. I'm like, yeah, like I'm here to play in the NHL. I don't want to play in another league. I don't really want to play anywhere else. Like just like whatever I got to do to get to the NHL, like that's what I'll do. And he's like, that's the best answer I heard all day. And then he said, you finished first in the world in central scouting fitness testing, which is like the combine. And he goes, we love athletes. We can teach athletes how to play hockey. We can't teach hockey players how to be exceptional athletes, which is interesting. So anyways, the next day they picked me 42nd overall in the world. And <laughs> it's kind of a dream come true, really. My buddies were going to the University of British Columbia in UBC, which is like in, near Vancouver. And I was playing for the Canucks, the team that everybody loves. So they would all ask for tickets. They'd come down to the game. I'd spend thousands of dollars on tickets for my buddies. And then we'd go back up to their crappy university bar and I'd buy 25 cent shots for the whole whole bar and think that I was the king of the castle. And I'd sleep on their dorm couch and like, 
it was hilarious. It was like, it was like we, we were still together, even though we're living in this big city now from our small town. So yeah, funny stories, good memories. Before we get into when you started to get concussions from playing hockey, what would you say it was like when you look back, one of like the crazier moments that you'll always hold dear to your heart from when you were in the NHL? Oh, man. I mean, there's many. I have thousands, thousands and thousands of memories from my games. And they're all not all positive, but like they're all intense, like the experience. I remember being on the ice after 9-11. We'd just gone down. I write about this in the book. We'd just gone down to ground zero trying to support the firemen. And they just look like zombies coming out of the rubble. It was just awful. Like they didn't want us there. They didn't want anybody there. You could not cheer up people that just lost half their fireman crew under millions of pounds of rubble. So that was emotional. And then coming back to Long Island and we had a game pretty soon after that. And I think Michael Buffer, the announcer was announcing, and then they had this huge flag that covered the whole ice surface. And I believe it was the Rangers Islanders, the two New York teams that hated each other, this rivalry. And both teams were holding the flag like United And then the crowd, Ranger fans and Islander fans who hate each other were like arm in arm crying together. And the national anthem was going on. The whole crowd was singing. And then what was crazy was they took that huge, huge American flag and they took it off the ice surface. And somehow it got into the lower bowl of the stadium. And the whole crowd, Islander fans and Ranger fans together, made the flag go around in a circle in the lower bowl of the stadium. And it was like goosebumps all over my arms. And I think I got to start that game and it was beautiful. It was like total unity. Mm. Like it was beautiful. Yeah, that was a really cool memory. That's awesome. So take me through the story. You're, you're playing in the NHL. Obviously, it's hockey. You're prone to injuries and it's a contact sport, obviously. So when did you get like your first concussion and then also the final concussion that you got? Yeah, it's not, it's kind of more complicated than that. I guess the first one was probably when I was like 10 or 11. And it's funny, but I was riding my, my BMX bike. I had these crazy neighbors and I really looked up to them. They're older boys than me and they were BMX riders and really good. And they used to build these crazy half pipes and ramps and quarter pipes. And this one ramp they were using to jump over a parked vehicle, a car. So it was pretty high up. I was like maybe four or five feet off the ground. And I remember they just always tell me, Dave, you're not allowed to come up here. Like, you're not allowed to do the jump. You're too little. I was just this little curious kid. And after they went into dinner, I rode my bike up to the top of the ramp just to see how tall it was. And the front tire fell over the top of the ramp. And I went over over to my handlebars head first down onto the ground and landed like on the top of my head. No helmet. No, no helmet. I mean, this is back <laughs> in the day, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then I remember, I literally remember coming too so obviously i was unconscious for a bit didn't really hurt that much but split my head and i was just dizzy and my head was bloody and everything and i knew if if i told my mom what was going to happen i was going to be in trouble because she told me to stay away from that ramp too and luckily it, it was on grass when i went so it wasn't on cement thank god but that was probably like the first one and obviously these aren't diagnosed you're like 10 or 11 years old and whatever the next one 12 years old I come flying around the net and I played with kids two years older than me. So I was pretty skinny and pretty small. And this 14 year old just smoked me and broke my helmet in half. And I had an XL7 helmet. It just broke in half like this. Broke my nose for the first time out of 12. I broke my nose 12 times while I played. And I just remember 
like being so dizzy and confused. And my dad was like a farm boy and a coal miner. He's really tough. And like, you don't ever say you're hurt. So like I came back, he borrows another kid's helmet because mine was broken in half, sticks it on my head and throws me out there like a couple shifts later. And I remember it was one of the only games I ever quit with my dad as a coach. And I was just skating around like completely disoriented. I didn't know anything and I just quit the game. And that was like one of the only games I ever quit as a kid. My dad knew something weird was going on. But once again, they didn't have concussion protocol back then. In the NHL, Ty Domi hit me with a really dirty one. His helmet hit me in my temple. That one in Toronto really messed me up. And then I had another weird one in Phoenix that made me stop playing for a year and a half. And then the last one was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when I got sent down from St. Louis, it was in the minor leagues. And that one really, really severely hurt me. It's on the book. And it's a big twist, Dan. So you should have read the book because it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'll definitely be checking it out. So will you dive into any of what comes next? Or or do we have to stop the podcast here and you got to read the book? Yeah, I don't know, Dan. It's kind of crazy story. And it's hard to... (laughs) tell it effectively i'll just be honest i've been doing a ton of these podcasts and it's like everybody wants me to tell that story and each time i do it's kind of a a crazy story but i'll never do it the justice that it really deserves but i'll do my best right now i'll try and uh after my fifth concussion i was laying on the ice and i was knocked out cold i was unconscious 11 minutes i was unconscious And as my trainer came running out to me and started to work on me and see if I was okay, paramedics came out. And as the paramedics came out, I just started like float, like completely out of my body. And I was watching them work on me. It was one of the trippiest things you could imagine. And I'm like, am I dreaming this? Like what's going on? And then I went into this like black space and it wasn't like scary, but I wasn't comfortable. It was just kind of a weird in between thing before finally like, it wasn't like something open, like elevator doors or anything. It was just suddenly went from like black to like the most beautiful light you've ever seen in your life. And I was literally crying because of what it felt like. And what that light felt like was pure, unconditional love that was palpable. Like you could feel it vibrating through you and then coming out of you at the same time. So there was no separation between you and the light, but the light was like you could just bask in it. It was like pure, unconditional love like of a parent, but times like a million. Mm. And then the crazy thing is there was no edges to anything. So you could, like if you were to take a breath, like you could just breathe like continuously out forever. It never stopped. So you're free, like you're free of this earthly body. So what was wild was it was so incredibly peaceful and calm and loving And there was no stress, there was no worry, there was no burden, there was no doubt, there was no fear, anxiety, no pressure. It was like, it was the coolest thing ever. And I just began sobbing because I didn't feel like I deserved any of that. So you had a complete out-of-body experience. Uh, Dude, listen, I died. I freaking, so the light picks me up like a child and is holding me. And I never saw like a, man in a robe or anything but the light is holding me and it's like stroking my hair just like a little boy like a little young baby telling me everything's gonna be okay now it's all gonna be okay 
And this went on and on. And I just sat there and basked in it. And just like, it was the most beautiful experience of my life. And that continued. What was wild was I didn't know where I was going, but the light began walking with me and holding my hand. So like, I was like a little boy, like walking and the light was walking and taking me somewhere. When I glanced down, only time I looked down the whole time I was up there, I had this flash vision in my eyes of my little one-year-old, two-year-old and four-year-old kids, all dressed in black, standing over my casket. My wife was dressed in black, crying as they were lowering my casket into the ground at my funeral. And my littlest guy jumped on the casket trying to hug it. And they started to throw dirt on the casket as it was starting to go down. And it hit my little kid on the back of his black suit. And that's like what made me stop. And I just like froze. And I said, like, can I go back? And the message back to me, which is really cool. The way the dialogue would work was I would think it and it would just come back to me like instantaneous message. And it was like, can I go back? It's like, well, you can, but you don't have to. You're home. And I'm like, uh... They're pretty little kids. I think I might want to go back. It's like, okay, Dave. It's okay. Everything will be okay. I'll take care of them. Like I always took care of you. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. They're too little. I don't want them to grow up without a dad. It wasn't a negotiation. I was just trying to figure out like how, how it works or if I had to, like, you know, obviously I wanted to stay. It was perfection. But my feeling for my family was so, so much stronger that I was just like, oh, I can't not go back. They can't grow up without a dad. So this went on and on for a few minutes. It was beautiful. Like I'm kind of shortcutting the story just for time's sake. But when it came time to go back, I turned to God and I said, you know, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to sell all my stuff and just give it away, give the money away, help needy people? Like, what do you want? And it was so, so loving. And it'd be like a father talking to his child. He was like, no, you don't got to do that. All I want you to do is I want you to take this love you feel right now, this unconditional joy and happiness and grace. I want you to bring that back on earth with you. And I want you to share that with every person that you come across and treat them like they're your brother or your sister, because they are. I said, that's it. (laughs) It's like, I can do that. And before I turned around to go back, I said, is there anything else? He said, I just want you to share this story. And the truth is I kept this actual story secret from everyone in my life for a year and a half. And then I told my first teammate about it, what I saw. And he's like, what's your wife say? And I'm like, I haven't told her yet. He's like, what? And I said, I haven't told her because I felt guilty because I, I almost didn't come back. I just kind of wanted to stay. Why would you want to come back to this when you see that? But my kids, my kids and my family. So I told my wife after talking to that guy, just a crazy story to her. And then I shared it with a few more people, but this whole book has been on my heart for like five years. And actually I was doing a podcast this morning and I came to the revelation. Like God's been telling me to share this story for the whole time since day one, but I did it for five years and I tried to write it my, like just write, 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 write. Couldn't do it. I had trouble getting it to the finish line. And finally I just said, you know what, I'm going to hire like some pros and help me get this thing across, across the finish line. And they took all my ideas and structured them and laid them out. How do you even explain this story? Or do I even include it in the book? Like there was a huge part of me that was afraid to do that because of what people might think or say. So what's wild is this book, like I'm finally keeping my second part of my promise. And that was to like share the story. And since I've done that, we became bestseller on Amazon. It's been amazing couple of weeks and things are just going to get bigger. But it wasn't all peachy when I came back either. <laughs> Let's go backwards just for a second. So yeah, you're on the ice. 
you said for about 11 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. I woke up in the ambulance outside the hospital at the end of it. In the physical state, you have no recollection of like being taken into the ambulance. No. Are you fully aware that you just had this experience or did that come a little bit later? What was crazy was when I first started to come back into my body for a little bit, I was like not all the way in. So I was still blissed out. Like I was still vibrating with that contrast of light from there to here. Mm. But then what got crazy was I was trying to ask the paramedics if they saw what I just saw. I'm like, did you guys see that? Was that incredible? Like, oh my God. And they're like, sir, you've been in an accident. You're outside the hospital. We're going to take your brain for some an MRI and your neck for an MRI. There's a chance that you might have broke your neck. Like, da, 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 da. And then as they started to talk to me and as I started to fully sink back into my body, the weight and the heaviness of like this world felt like there was like an elephant like sitting on my chest and just squishing me. And Dan, the pain of the migraines, of the slurred speech, of the memory loss, of the broken collarbone and broken ribs and broken nose. After being at the most incredible perfection to this broken, crumpled mess on a spinal board in an ambulance with his hockey gear still kind of on him, cut down the middle, totally confused, not knowing what the hell just happened. It almost killed me again because of the pain. Like I was just like, after that purity and that freedom to like this confined space it felt so uncomfortable and it just got worse for three years so immediately after you broke your collarbone yeah i mean that's not a big deal like my my, the bleeding in my brain was kind of the the big the big deal that crippled me and i had difficulty like i couldn't communicate i couldn't play with my kids i could i like i slurred my speech i was like a, a fraction of the pro athlete that i was i was just broken so they take you to the hospital they run they run some tests what specifically like what did you break you, you had mentioned you had some bleeding in your brain was the message right away like you're never going to play hockey again yeah pretty much i mean and the weird thing is like i'm like oh no like even the next day like i remember talking to my trainers and the doctor at the exit team meetings or whatever and like hanging out like i just was completely blowing it off like everything's like fine and then it just got worse and worse and the headaches and then the season was over so i just went off on my own and when the doctors at at the mayo clinic mri'd my brain and showed me these like they were kind of like gray black like areas in my brain they're like These should not be here, Dave. And what they told me was it doubles, it compounds every concussion. So if you got one, you're twice as likely to have two. If you've had two, you're four times as likely to have three. If you've had three, you're 16 times as likely to have four. And not every concussion leaves, you know, scar tissue. A CTE is just competitive, consistent, like bumping. And just that's what causes CTE. So you might look at a brain and it looks pretty healthy, but the chemicals inside the brain are are damaged from the CTE. So anyways, I was getting offers to play in Russia for like a million dollars and stuff. And like my brain was like, yeah, let's go play. And then like, 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 what are you talking about? You can't even like function. Like you can't play hockey. Like, but I'd just been programmed to just give that answer all the time. And I ended up hiding in my movie theater, just being in the dark all the time because the light really bothered my eyes and gave, gave my migraines even worse. After three years at the Mayo Clinic, the docs just said, hey, you have permanent disabilities. There's some stuff that you just can't bounce back from. And that's kind of where we're at with you. You know, three years of three days a, a week protocol. 
there's not anything else we really know how to like there's nothing we can just give you so i was on adderall what's that disease called alzheimer's alzheimer's medicine pain pills sleeping pills i mean they're just pumping me full of like stuff and i'm like what are you doing like i'm a supernatural person nothing helped it was terrible what's it like like you know you've you obviously play hockey for the first 20 years of your life till you make it to the NHL. You achieve your childhood dream. You're in the NHL. You're playing. What's it like to have it all taken from you? Basically, you know, in the in the blink of an eye because it happened in a moment, basically. I was really lucky it happened to me at 34 or 35 years old as opposed to like 21 or 22. So like at least I got a career out of it and I set up financially and things like that. So that's great. But the identity loss for any athlete, whether they're retiring healthy or whether they're forced out and they have to stop playing. When you lose your identity, it really sets people for a loop because their identity is kind of their purpose. A lot of people. And I was so broken that I couldn't, I couldn't even work. I could have got NHL jobs coaching and I could have done all these things and I couldn't, I just couldn't physically do it. And I was really delayed cognitively. My brain just wasn't working. It's was kind of embarrassing. Yeah, it's it's one thing to lose your identity when your actually head is working and your brain is working, but when it, none of it's working and you have to lose your identity, then like, why are you here? Like, what's the mm. point? And I'm like cursing God. I'm like, well, I know you're real. Where are you right now? <laughs> like, why are you punishing me? That's yeah. how I felt. I was like being punished for something. But the thing was, I had a couple of miracles that I prayed for after I left that, the Mayo Clinic that day. I did have miracle where I knew I was going to heal. And at the end of that night, I was brushing my teeth in the mirror and God started to speak to me and share with me that the reason why I had to suffer to that deep and dark place for that long was that I needed to understand anxiety. I needed to understand depression. I needed to understand compassion and empathy because the people that were going to be coming to me in the near future would be coming to me from all kinds of places and not always good places. And then that day I started, I knew I was going to like become a, a life and business coach. That was the day. And trust me, having a deep understanding of what the pit feels like and hopelessness feels like and anxiety and fear, I wouldn't have got that understanding of it if I was only an NHL player and things were just like rocket ship perfect, you know? <laughs> Like, yeah, it, it's almost like it developed the other side of me and created this bigger contrast. So I felt the darkest dark and I felt the lightest light. Mm. And then to be able to coach within that space and just meet people wherever they're at and have a basic understanding of, okay, this is probably how their life feels right now because I've been in that spot and I've been in this spot. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, the concussion led you to embark on your own journey of discovery, uh, physical and spiritual healing. What was that process or what was that journey like for you? Where'd you start? Where'd it take you? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So it's a really cool story. So I leave the Mayo Clinic and I'm just crying in my car and I refuse to accept the diagnosis that they just gave me. Like these smartest guys in the world, smartest doctors in the world, like Dave, you're just going to be like banged up like this the rest of your life. And I'm like, no, I'm like, there's got to be somebody that can save me, like somebody that can help me or heal me miraculously or whatever. So I go home. This is literally a true story. So I wrote about it in the book. I come home. I'm renovating a property because I, I bought it before the injury. It's a huge property. I'm putting in some koi ponds and waterfalls and stuff. I give the guy an $80,000 check and he looks at me like I got like five heads and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, 
Dave, you already, you paid me yesterday. Like, Oh shit. $80,000. But could you imagine like what kind of other mistakes was I going to make? So I hired a life coach. He happened to be affiliated with Tony Robbins group. We get talking and he's like, Dave, if you could heal, what would you want to do? And I said, I want to help people. I I said, I want to help people out of suffering and I want to help kids. Like I want to help young athletes and stuff like that. And he's like, okay, well, you need to go to San Diego for this leadership academy. So I went to Tony's leadership academy. Tony doesn't even show up to it. He has other people coach it. But the training was so good. That's when I had a couple of miracles. And that day, after learning all these psychological techniques and tools and having these miracles happen, I knew that I was going to heal and that I just needed to be around people who were doing different stuff like this. So within a month, I invested in Tony's Platinum Partner Program. That was like 100 grand. I did that two years in a row. I chased him all over the world and did every event that he did and sat front row and got special events and stuff with him. And then he's the one that kind of pushed me to coach too. He just said, you know, you just got too much to share and you need to like step up and get, get certified and get help on people. So he was pushing me to do it. The universe, everything was pushing me to help. And I kind of already did it naturally with people, but I still wasn't really fixed myself all the way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then Tony would take us to one of the first or second events. Tony's handlers bring me to the side and they're like, hey, you should go work with so-and-so like Donnie Epstein. He's one of Tony's healer guys. I'm like, okay, cool. And then another guy, John Amaral, who's just in that Gwyneth Paltrow goop show. He was working on people. And then he learned from Donnie and Donnie and John were doing the same kind of stuff. And then I'd meet a shaman in uh, Brazil Then I'd go to India and Tony would introduce us to the oneness people at Oneness University and they were monks. And then, so everyone he would invite, like introduce me to, I would just like invest. (laughs) So I just go and start training with them too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like, well, shoot, if Tony, if Tony's got this guy around after 20 years, he must know what he's doing. So I'm like, I don't care what it costs. I spent $800,000 of my own money healing and training over a course of the last, I don't know, probably the last 10 years, about 800 grand. And that's like mastermind groups. That's like all kinds of different communities, healing groups, grandmaster from China, <laughs> like you name it. So you've tried a lot of different things. Everything. Uh, yeah, pretty much everything. And it's like, you know, I, I try to stay away from chemical stuff. Like I don't really, I did ayahuasca. That's the only weird thing that I did. And I'd never used anything in my whole life. And I'm in the jungles in the Amazon sleeping in hammocks. And uh, I end up meeting a shaman there. And out of 150 people on the trip, they took nine of us. And somehow she wanted me to go on the journey. And if I hadn't already done such deep work on myself, I think it might have helped. But I was really open. Like I had really done a lot of work transcendental meditation and things like that leading into that. So the actual chemical of the ayahuasca, I didn't like it. I had a bad experience, sort of. I think it might help somebody that's super locked, but that wasn't me at the case. And I saw a lot of darkness that I didn't even know existed. So got it. So you didn't have a good experience there. No. When you're saying you met with all these healers, you met with different healers who help people heal in all different ways. And I'm assuming that's all all captured in, in the book. Yeah, like all of it. And, you know, like Tony would introduce me to a financial guy. I just go and buy his program. It's 10 grand. I'm like, sit down. I'm like, teach me everything you know about this. And then we go down another thing. And it was like these rabbit holes that I would find. And then 
one person would introduce me to another person. They're like, oh my goodness, you got to go work with so-and-so. And I did. And in the book, there's one point I talk about going to work with this guy in Seattle and they stuck these balloons up my nose and pumped them up and it popped the front of my face out. And then did this crown of thorns thing where he injected all these things around my head and I was just bleeding everywhere. And then this syringe just went through my temple that was about five inches long and it went deep. And I'm like, is he in my brain? Like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and I actually healed after that one. That was after my fourth concussion. I did that one. But just wild stuff, man. It sounds like you've done quite a, like just about everything. But what's one thing that you did that really helped heal you or you were just surprised? Maybe you didn't think that it was going to be so impactful that it really moved the needle to help heal you and move you forward. Well, when I went to that first event, there were two exercises because when I was driving down there to San Diego from Scottsdale, it was kind of the first time I left my house for a road trip in like three years because of the, my condition. And I had to pull over and sleep on the side of the road a couple of times. It was too stressful for me and stuff like that. Like I was not in a good place. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to freak the listeners out or anything, but like I was at the point where like, I'm like, okay, I'm 35 or I'm 37, whatever I was at the age when they gave me the diagnosis at the Mayo Clinic that you're not going to get better. I said to myself, like, if I don't get better in the next little bit, like, I'm just going to check out because I regretted my decision coming back from heaven the whole time. I was like, I might as well have stayed. Like, I came back to live like this. Like, what? It didn't make sense. So the first thing, and I discovered this sort of on my own, was during that workshop, they were asking a bunch of questions and where we were now as compared to our, our purest version of our soul. And... As a little boy, when I was five years old, um, okay, cool. I got this picture here. So a little boy, when I was five years old, I saw myself just free. Nobody had bullied me. No, nothing bad had happened to me. I hadn't been spanked really yet. I hadn't been yelled at. I hadn't had a girl break my heart. I, not, nothing. I was like this pure little angel. And I'd run around. I'd play outside. I thought I was Superman. I thought I could fly. My grandma made me a cape. And I saw this vision. And this is actually the vision that I had of this little boy it's five years old, so for the listeners, I had this Superman cape on, and somebody is holding me up laterally, so it looks like I'm flying. And I was just yeah. this free little guy. I had a couple Irish setters that were my dogs, and I'll get to the point here in a second. And then I fast-forwarded to, like, where I was when I was at this event. And I was, like, 38, kind of suicidal thoughts running through my head. I just felt like a burden, like I was, like, a weight on everybody else. And I looked at that version. That guy had millions of dollars in the bank dream wife, dream kids, and so much pain that it would be almost easier just to check out. And I'm like, where's this little guy? Like, where's this little angel? I don't see him anywhere. And I started to panic. And I go to the back of the conference room and a trainer knew that this really affected me. And they came back with me and I started ripping off all these layers of armor and protection that I put on. Like every time something bad happened in my life. Like it hurt me so much. I'm such a sensitive person that like I would stack up this armor to make it not hurt so much. It's like if somebody breaks your heart and then like you protect yourself, you're like, I'm not going to give all of it next time because that like that almost killed me. That's how it felt like. So imagine like 35 years of kind of like armoring up to the point where like I could become this killer and run through this wall and not feel anything. But the only problem was, was that I couldn't feel anything. So I start removing this armor like, wow. I'm in the back of the room and I'm just going crazy. And I had like hundreds of layers of armor on. When I got to the bottom of that armor, I saw like little David, like crouching down underneath all this armor. And I lifted him up and I said, all right, little buddy, like 
he was the same light as the light that I saw in heaven. And that was the way that God had made me in the first place. I'm like, why don't I just let you lead? Like, what would David do? What would this little guy do? Not the gladiator, but what would this little guy do? He'd just love everybody. He'd just help everybody. And the second that I did that, all of the healing that had been trying to get to me, but couldn't penetrate all the armor, just came flooding over me like a waterfall. And I was just like in pure bliss, pure ecstasy. And it felt exactly like it felt when I had my heaven experience. So I knew it was truth. Mm. And I felt protected by it, actually, which is weird. So I felt more protected by the light that was surrounding me than when I had all my hard armor on. And it was suffocating me almost. So I started letting this little guy decide on what I was going to do and how I was going to live my life. And that was just helping people. So little David started this coaching program. And last year, I'm proud to say we helped over 17,000 people come through uh, some of our different challenges and programs. We're creating a movement right now with All-Star Coaching, and it's it's incredible. That's awesome. So it sounds like, you know, you had a lot of training from Tony Robbins or the Tony Robbins group or organization. Have you like pulled from that? And then some of the other places where you've learned about different ways to heal, you made it your own, or are you teaching more like coaching, I guess, like more like the Tony Robbins? Because I know he has like a big coaching curriculum. Tell us a little bit about your coaching business today. Nobody else does what I do. We get six and seven figure results all the time for our clients, like consistently. So it's never been an issue about results, but what's been fascinating to me is the process. And I've come up with my completely own process on how I rebuilt my life from the ground up. I had to get out of that pit. I had to rebuild myself from scratch. So it was really fresh and easy for me to teach and everyone could relate to it. So we just started exploding and we started running these challenges and things. And like, I'm so grateful to be doing what I love and what I'm really, really good at. And yeah, I was certified by Tony's group and stuff, but like, that doesn't matter. Like my, my teaching comes from my experiences in life. Mm. It comes from earning these jerseys behind me and, and how much focus and how much dedication that took. They don't just hand those out. (laughs) I earn those things. And I don't know how many coaches can say that they earned that level the top level in the whole world. So there's lessons I learned from that. There's lessons I learned from Tony, but Tony was like one fiftieth of the coaches I've worked with. So like I take little sprinkles and the golden nuggets from everybody yeah. and I just roll it into my system. And I say, look, like, is this in alignment? Is, is this truthful? I coach in reality. So we get really raw, really naked, really fast with people. And people are like, Dave, how are you getting all these money results when you don't really teach money? I do teach money. I teach basic, basic fundamentals. I'm teaching the whole system, the whole energetic field. And when your field can go up in vibration, then it up levels everything. Your health will be better. Your relationship will be better and your finances will be better. And if those things are better, do you think that it's just natural that like, it's just going to keep like up leveling? So I really focus on the energetic field and really bringing focused attention to where our energy goes every day. You know, it sounds like you're really living and it's crazy to say this, but it sounds like you had this childhood dream of playing in the NHL, but it sounds like really you're living your your dream life today, helping impact so many people. Looking back, are you grateful? And I don't know if that's a weird way to put it, but are you grateful that you did get that concussion, that you were put in that dark place because you ultimately are here today? And, you know, you said five minutes ago, last year you helped 17,000 plus people. Yeah. No, I mean... This is part of what we teach, but it's like, if you can take those moments that are 
they feel like they're the worst moments of your life. You're like, well, why did I have to get hurt? Why did I have to get hurt so bad? Why did I have to be such a mess? Like I could have made millions more dollars playing hockey. I could have done this. I could have done that. Like, no, I got hurt because God was trying to move me and realign me with this other purpose that was, I was originally designed for. And if hockey was the stepping stone to give me a stage to speak from, so people pick up the phone and listen to me. Great. I don't question it anymore. And I'm so grateful for those injuries. I'm grateful to find something that I love to do. That's really authentic and really helps people. Like I'm doing, I'm living my purpose and I'm serving it in such a easy way for me that it's just like natural. And it's like the slipstream and the jet stream. And I believe that that's why things are happening so quickly. That's why the book goes to number one on Amazon. That's why this, that, and the other thing it's like, cause I'm in alignment and I'm open to serve and I'm just listening. So whatever messages are being nudged to me, I'm sharing it with the world as quickly as it comes into me. So I just keep getting more downloads and it's like, okay, who wants to work? Like, let's go. Mm, Love that. Yeah. We can start to wrap up the show. One question I love to ask all my guests, the Bits of Gold podcast, all about building your dream life. So, you know, we covered some things in the last hour or so, but what would be your Bits of Gold on how to build a life you love? You got to do what you love to live a life that you love. And when you can also not make it all about you, it's so much easier to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. But when it's about other people and you do serve those other people and you do energize them, that comes back to you like a thousand. So to, you know, what it's like to really do something like just because it's the right thing to do and to help somebody and how you made their life better because you showed up and you're a blessing. Like that's how you live a full life. It's not about money. Like I've made tens of millions of dollars in my career, my life, and my business. Like it doesn't freaking matter. I coach people that have a hundred million dollars in the bank and want to kill themselves. Like, mm-hmm. how does that work? <laughs> it's not about the money, everybody. Listen, find happiness in the most beautiful, simple things. If you're on a beautiful walk and the smell of grass, or you're in a creek and you're looking at nature and you're realizing that God made every single branch and tree different. He could have just made like one thing that was a tree and just put that all over the world. But there's so many different variations and varieties and uniquenesses. And that's what makes it so beautiful and special. Just like we are. We're like snowflakes. We're all different and beautiful and special. And like own it. Own your uniqueness and your abilities and your gifts because that's why God gave them to you. He didn't tell a turtle to try to become a bear and vice versa. It's like our world tries to like compare themselves to everyone all the time. And it's like, that's the worst thing. It's like, I call it comparisitis. It's like a disease. Do you and rock you and your favorite things that you love to do. And who cares where it goes? There's somebody that's a doodle artist that's making hundreds of thousands of dollars doodling art. If you like to doodle art, be the best doodler and go figure out how to make a business out of it. I mean, Mm. so anyways, that's about it really. (laughs) Yeah. Much easier said than done. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, who will get a lot from reading your book. So where can people find the book, buy the book, and also get in touch with you if they want to work with you or go to a future event? Okay, so book, Amazon right now. Amazon is the best place to get the book for the next week. And then we'll be doing a little book funnel that'll be really fun for everybody. Allstarcoaching.com, that website should be launched in the next couple of days. That's, we just read it, the whole thing. So that's really going to be really cool. DaveScatcher.com, there's some stuff there. Follow me on Instagram, message me on Instagram. We have a live event in December, which I want to give you guys all a discounted ticket to. It's a $1,000 program. We're going to give it to you for $297 or $99. And that's just because you're on this amazing podcast. So I'd love to see you at my live event in Scottsdale, December 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And... 
Yeah, man. Check out the book. I promise you'll laugh, you'll cry. It's a great Christmas gift too. So Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Dave. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I will make sure to shout you out on the next episode. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.